Open your Bibles to John chapter 19, verses 31 through 37. John chapter 19, verses 31 through 37. And as you turn there, let us go to the Lord and ask His blessing on the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. Our gracious King, we thank You that You have triumphed over death, hell, and the grave. We thank You that You are the Lion and the Lamb. We thank You for the perfect sacrifice that was accomplished for us on Calvary. And Lord, we ask now that as we open Your Word and we, as we hear Your Word read, that it would bear fruit in our hearts and in our minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord this morning from John 19, verses 31 through 37. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord it endures forever. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. It's a little better this morning. Thank you. Wonder what sort of doubts you have struggled with about the work of and the life of Jesus Christ. Have you ever had any doubts about Jesus and His miracles, about Jesus and His teachings, about Jesus and... His death on the cross about Jesus and His resurrection from the grave. Maybe you've had doubts about the historical account that we have in Scripture. After all, it was 2,000 years ago and memories can fade sometimes. And so maybe you struggle with perhaps that Jesus was a real historical person. Maybe you struggle with the doubts, with doubts about the supernatural aspects of Jesus and His life and ministry. Maybe you doubt the miracles. Maybe you doubt because you affirm the scientific method that, and you know that dead people don't raise from the, get up from the grave, and so you doubt about Jesus' resurrection. Maybe you doubt about the significance of these events. You're fine with Jesus being a historical person and a good moral teacher and a good example for us to, of how to live, but the whole thought of God pouring out His wrath upon Jesus, it all sounds like cosmic child abuse to you. Maybe you doubt with its relevance for you personally. 
Jesus and his cross are for those religious people who need such crutches in their life, but for you it doesn't bear that much relevance or importance. Maybe you believe, but sometimes you doubt. And sometimes your faith feels small and weak. At some point in our lives, we will struggle with doubts about Jesus. I've struggled with them. I'm sure if you could speak openly this morning that you could share times in your life when you have had doubts about Jesus and His work on the cross. And I imagine that John's readers had doubts too. We think that John's readers, original readers, were comprised of two groups of people. Number one, Jewish Christians who had been dispersed from Jerusalem after the destruction of the temple. And for them, the Messiah was to be a living figure who ruled and reigned from Jerusalem and that they expected would throw off Roman occupation. And so the idea of a crucified Messiah caused some doubts for them. The other group of John's readers were Gentile Christians, and these were individuals who did not grow up hearing the Old Testament Scriptures, who did not grow up with any expectation that a Jewish Messiah would come. And so for them, they're hearing the stories perhaps for the first time, and the whole idea about Jesus walking on water and turning the water into wine and feeding the 5,000 and resurrecting from the dead, well, they might doubt those claims. John presents in his gospel eyewitness testimony to the life and death of Jesus Christ. He calls upon all his readers, including us, to strengthen our faith in Jesus with evidence from the cross. John is saying that he was an eyewitness, that he was there when Jesus was alive. He walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He touched Jesus. He saw Jesus. He was there when the miracles happened. He was there at the foot of the cross. He even was an eyewitness to the resurrected Lord. And so what John is calling upon all his readers to do, even those of us, some now, 2,000 years later, he calls upon us to strengthen our faith in Jesus with the evidence that comes from the cross. Well, what sort of evidence is there from the cross? There's two pieces of evidence in these few verses. Let me show them to you. would challenge you to contemplate these two pieces of evidence this morning. Number one, contemplate the eyewitness evidence to Jesus' death on the cross. I want you to see that in this passage. Number one, John is an eyewitness to Jesus' death. And he calls upon us to contemplate that. John shares with us, as an eyewitness, all sorts of information about the cross. First, he shares with us in verse 31 the timing of when the cross happened. Did you notice in verse 31 how he shares that it was what? The day of preparation. This is... Uh, Friday, the day before the Jewish Sabbath day, which began at sundown on Saturday. And so John shares with us that the death of Jesus, it occurred on the day of preparation, and 
it occurred at, at Passover time. The Sabbath day was coming, and he tells us that the Sabbath was about to happen and that it wasn't just any Sabbath, but it was a what? Verse 31, a high day. This was the Sabbath day coming up and not just any Sabbath day, but it was the Sabbath day of the Passover feast. And so John shares with us the timing of these events. Jesus died on a Friday, the day of preparation, the time period was during the festival of Passover, and the specific timing of Jesus' death was the day before the Sabbath Passover, or the Passover Sabbath. Reverse that. John shares with us the timing of these events. Not only does he share with us the timing, but he provides information for us about the body of Jesus. He wants us to know that he saw Jesus' body on the cross. Because of the timing of the events, the events, the Jews asked, the Jewish leaders asked Pilate to have the legs of Jesus broken. They want these bodies taken down from the cross. They knew the Sabbath day was coming. They knew the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 21 that the Mosaic law instructed that if any man received the punishment of death, that he was cursed if he was hung on a tree, but that his body was not to hang there overnight, as was the Roman custom. The body was to be taken down and buried the same day, according to the law of Moses. Roman custom was to allow the agony and the suffering of the person on the cross to last for days and to leave the body shamed even after the person had died, to leave the body on the cross to be consumed by the vultures. So under the Jewish law, they want these bodies taken down from the cross. For Moses had instructed them in Deuteronomy that bodies being left out overnight would defile the land. Isn't it interesting and perhaps ironic? They are concerned that Jesus' dead body will defile the land. And so they ask for Jesus' legs to be broken so that He might be buried on that day. The soldiers come. We read in verse 32. They come and they break the legs of the two men who were crucified next to Jesus. Again, notice all the eyewitness details that John is providing to us. They came first, broke the legs of the two men, and essentially what this would do would be to hasten death. An individual being hanged on the cross would use the strength remaining in his arms and his feet to pull himself upward and to press himself upward so that he might gain a deep breath rather than suffer the asphyxiation that he would experience on the cross. And this could go on for hours. And so breaking the legs of the individual upon the cross would prohibit them from using the strength remaining in their legs to press upwards so that they might gain breath, a breath. And so what would happen is that the individual would essentially, they would asphyxiate not being able to get a deep breath and it would bring death on more quickly. It would hasten the death of the person hanging upon the cross. So the soldiers come and they break the legs of the two men. But when they come to Jesus, what do they find? Verse 33 tells us that 
he was already dead. So John provides for us not only eyewitness testimony to the timing of Jesus' death, the events surrounding Jesus' death, but he also provides for us eyewitness testimony that Jesus is what? That he's truly dead. Don't miss this detail in the text. He, the soldiers come to Jesus, his body is already dead, and so they, they don't break his legs. The Roman soldiers don't. So what can they do to provide testimony regarding the orders that they've received? What can they do to make certain that Jesus is dead? One of the Roman soldiers takes a spear, verse 34, and he pierced the side of Jesus. And John accounts for us what happened when they pierced Jesus' body. Blood and water flowed. So John is saying, I am 100% certain that Jesus was 100% dead. That's what John is saying. Not only did he see his body upon the cross, not only did he hear his final words, but at the time at which the other, the others, their legs were to be broken, Jesus' legs were not broken and his side was pierced. He was absolutely dead and the blood and water flowed out from his body. He is absolutely certain that Jesus was dead. And he shares all this with the specific purpose of edifying our faith. Why share all this information? Why share all these details about the death of Jesus? He tells us, verse 35, look, he says, He who saw it has borne witness. What's John saying? He's saying, I was there. I saw these events. I am a witness to these events. And he testifies that his testimony, his conscience is absolutely clear in the testimony that he's giving. It's true, he says. His testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth. Notice the emphasis from John as he recounts these events. They are real, true, historical events that he is, is recounting and he is recounting the fact that he saw Jesus' body and that he saw Jesus die. And the whole reason that he shares his eyewitness testimony is what? Look there in verse 35. That you may what? That you may also believe. In the early church, they had to fight against a false teaching called Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means mind or knowledge. And Gnosticism taught that the flesh is bad, but that the spirit is good. And so that they taught that the spirit is imprisoned in the physical body. And so God then, because the spirit is good and the flesh is bad, God through a series of demiurges and demigods, created all physical flesh. Not directly himself, because that would corrupt him in order to uh, mess with what's physical and fleshly. And so God created all of the physical universe that you see through a series of demiurges and demigods. And this could be revealed to you through secret knowledge, through the Gnostic teaching. 
What happened when Gnosticism encountered Christianity then was that they took this thinking about the flesh being bad and the spirit being good and they applied it to Jesus in a teaching called Docetism. comes from a Greek word, dokeo, which means to seem. That's the verb in Greek, to seem. And so the teaching behind that is that Jesus then, because again, the flesh is bad and the spirit is good, Jesus came as an enlightened demiurge to reveal to us how to set our spirits free from the prison of our body. Jesus then was not truly man. He only seemed to be man. He had an appearance of flesh. He had an appearance of suffering. He had an appearance of dying on the cross. He had an appearance that he was dead upon the cross. But that only seemed to be the case. Jesus was more like a phantom. He was true spirit, was the teaching in Docetism. John is writing during what is probably the early stages of this controversy in church history, writing perhaps around 90 A.D. or so. And Gnosticism is just beginning to gain popularity. And Docetism, the early seeds of Docetism are beginning to work its way in the church. And in fact, we think that that is uh, more directly what John is counteracting in his, past, in his epistles, in especially 1 John, when you read it. Isn't it interesting that John accounts for us an eyewitness testimony that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. Go back to the prologue of the Gospel of John. What does he say about Jesus? He says, in the beginning was the Word. It's John's way of saying that Jesus is eternally God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God, and He created all. All things. So it's John's way of testifying, yes, Jesus is fully God. And to that, the Docetists would say, absolutely, fully God. But then, what does John say about the eternal Word? John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. To that, the Docetists, they would, red flags would go up. They'd say, what do you mean? He took on flesh. You mean he appeared to have flesh. He seemed to have flesh. And John is saying, I know he was fully God and fully man. I saw his signs. I saw his miracles with my own eyes. And I saw his body. I saw the blood and water flow from his side from the cross. For John, Jesus is fully God, fully man, without separation, without parts. Our culture today doesn't struggle so much with the idea of Jesus being fully man, but they struggle with the idea or the teaching that Jesus is what? Fully God. And so, like the Docetists who separate the humanity and the deity of Jesus, so too our culture today will attempt to separate the humanity from the deity of Jesus. They're okay with Jesus being a man. 
they're okay with Jesus being a historical person. I mean, if you watch during the Easter season, if you watch the Discovery Channel, you'll get a whole lot of garbage documentaries about Jesus being man. Not a single one of them give an account of Jesus being fully God. Why? Our culture, they can't stand the teaching that Jesus is fully God and fully man. The Nicene Creed that we confess this morning comes from the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. And that council, among other things, was combating a false teaching called Arianism. Arianism. Arius, the false teacher, taught that Jesus was not fully God, but that He was God's first created being. It's a false teaching many people still believe today. What does the creed affirm for us? What do we read this morning? He's the eternal, begotten, only Son of God, fully God, and that He was made what? Flesh. And that He came down and dwelt among us. You see, if Jesus is not fully God, He can't reconcile us to God. But if He's not fully man, He can't suffer in our place either. What John is calling upon us to do is to strengthen our faith with the evidence that comes from the cross. He wants us to know Jesus really, truly died. He saw it with His own eyes. And because Jesus died, fully God and fully man, we're reconciled to God and Jesus suffered in our place. He calls upon us to contemplate that. Contemplate the evidence that comes from Jesus' death on the cross. The eyewitness evidence. Second, not only does He want us to contemplate the eyewitness evidence, He wants us to contemplate the scriptural or the biblical evidence that comes from the cross. So you see these two things in this passage. John is an eyewitness sharing all these details about seeing the body of Jesus and the death of Jesus and all the events that took place. So he shares his eyewitness testimony. But then, in these last two verses, he shares the biblical evidence to Jesus' death on the cross. Look with me at verse 36. John says that this took place for what purpose? It took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Okay, stop right there. If you go back and you read chapter 19, you will see in a couple of different key places that John keeps recounting this. That the soldiers dividing up Jesus' garments and casting lots for His tunic fulfilled Scripture. That Jesus asking for a drink, saying, I thirst, and being given sour wine, it fulfilled Scripture. And then we'll see in the next chapter, even Jesus' resurrection from the dead, John says, fulfilled Scripture. And the idea behind this is that every single little minute detail John is telling us, even something as small as soldiers dividing the garments of Jesus and Jesus asking for a drink, fulfilled God's plans and purposes. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater, isn't it? If dividing up the garments of Jesus fulfilled God's plans, then His death 
upon the cross fulfilled God's plans. John here continues in that same thinking here then in verse 36, letting us know that these things took place. What things? The piercing of Jesus' side and not breaking Jesus' legs. These fulfilled Scripture. Okay, John, how did they fulfill Scripture? Look at his quote. Verse 36. Not one of his bones will be what? Broken. What's John referring to? John is referring to Jesus as the perfect representative for his people. If you go back and you read Exodus 12, and you go back and you read Numbers 9, you'll read about the Passover lamb and how the Passover lamb was to be slain and prepared, and not one of the bones of the Passover lamb was to be broken. The Passover lamb represented all of God's people. It was to be a perfect representative. And because it represented the household and no one was to be excluded, not one of the bones of the Passover lamb was to be broken. And John is telling us that during the Passover season, the true Passover lamb came. The Lord Jesus Christ. The perfect Passover lamb came. And He was, when He went to the cross and His death upon the cross, He was a perfect representative for God's people. Not just in His life, but even in the smallest detail that not one of His bones would be broken was foretold and foresignified by the Passover lamb. Jesus is that Passover lamb. That's what John's saying. He's also merging this Old Testament quotation with Psalm, Psalm 34, verse 20. We've seen the theme in John 19 of the kingship of Jesus. Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? The charge from the Jews against Jesus is that He claims to be the King of the Jews. The inscription over Jesus' head while He hanged upon the cross was what? King of the Jews. And we see Jesus being the truly righteous sufferer that David spoke about in the Psalms when he talked about his own suffering, that though he was righteous, he suffered and God preserved him. John's returning back to that theme and letting us know that this Jesus, not only is He the Lamb, but He is also the King. Psalm 34, verses 19-20, through 20, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, David said in Psalm 34. Not one of them is broken. So for John... The testimony here, or the evidence here from Scripture, is that just as God preserved King David, who suffered, though he was righteous, he suffered, so God will keep and preserve His own Son, the true Son of David, the true King. He will preserve Him upon the cross, and not one of His bones will be broken. Look with me here at verse 37. John continues. There's another Scripture that's fulfilled. What is it? Look at verse 37. They will look on Him whom they have pierced. This is a direct quotation from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. It is evidence that Jesus is an effectual sacrifice. 
Zechariah chapter 10, it recounts about how God's people in Jerusalem were notorious for killing God's prophets. God would send them His representatives and they would kill God's prophets. And so in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, God tells them, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Okay, he's going to pour out his grace upon them. There's going to be repentance in Jerusalem. How? What means will God use? Zechariah 12.10 When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Wait a minute. Are they going to look at God's representative or are they going to be looking at God? And the answer is, mm hmm. What John is telling us is that this is fulfilled in Christ. The true prophet, the prophet like Moses, has come. He's been put to death in Jerusalem, and his death will be effectual and it will lead many to repentance. Why? Zechariah 12.10 They will mourn as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Which Jesus called in His relationship to the Father. He's the special Son. He's the Son of promise, isn't He? He's the firstborn Son. Firstborn of all creation. He is the only begotten Son. We know that so well from, Genesis, or from John 3.16, don't we? The only begotten Son. God so loved the world, He gave His what? Only begotten Son. What does that mean? It means that He is the Son of promise who is in an absolute unique relationship to the Father. And it is His death that the Lord uses to lead many to repentance. John also sees Another fulfillment of Zechariah 12, when you read Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, he sees Christ exalted, and he says in Revelation 1 verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. What will happen? Even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. It's another reference to Zechariah 12, verse 10. How will you know that you are strengthening your faith with evidence that comes from the cross? I'll tell you how. Consider Jesus as your perfect Passover lamb. You know that you're strengthening your faith with evidence that comes from the cross when you see in Jesus, you see in Him not just a martyr, but someone who died on your account who stood in your place and died for your sins. You know you're strengthening your faith with the evidence that comes from the cross when you see in Jesus one who persevered by the power of God's Spirit, whom the Lord preserved so that He would resurrect from the grave that we might have resurrection life from Him. You know you're strengthening your faith with the evidence that comes from the cross when you look upon Jesus and you have sorrow and repentance for your sin, when you know that it's not something that just happened and that's true, but it's something that occurred for you and that it was your sins that pierced Him. 
When you see, as Jonathan Edwards says, that you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You might be wondering this morning, Pastor, I see all those things and I believe all those things, but sometimes I doubt. My faith is often weak. My faith grows cold sometimes. Sometimes it's not a, a, a truth that fills my heart with the gladness and the joy that it should. Sometimes it doesn't lead me to adoration and worship as it should. Sometimes my faith is cold. Does that mean I don't have faith? Dear Christian, just like the smallest of fruit is still fruit, and just like a coin with an inscription that's barely visible is still currency, and just like gold is still gold even when there's dross in it, so faith is still faith even when it's weak and small. It doesn't take much faith, does it? It takes the faith like the grain of a mustard seed. You know what you can do with that faith? You can strengthen it. You can feed it. You can nurture it with the evidence that comes from the cross so that your faith will become stronger and stronger. And this passage is here for us that we might contemplate the work of Christ, that we might contemplate the eyewitness testimony so that we will have a strong faith that Jesus really and truly died and we're to contemplate the evidence from Scripture that Jesus came not just to die, but that He came to die for our sins. What are your doubts this morning? You doubt that at times? Let me encourage you to strengthen your faith in Jesus with evidence that comes from the cross. Do you doubt that Jesus died for your sins sometimes? Go back to the evidence from the cross and examine it again. Do you doubt that one day you'll be resurrected from the dead because Jesus was resurrected from the dead? Do you doubt that you'll persevere in this life? Go back to the cross. Re-examine the evidence. Jesus truly came, He truly died, and He did so for our sins. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for a faithful, trustworthy account of the death of our Savior Jesus Christ. Not only an account of His death, but also an account about the significance of His death. That He came to die for our sins. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God. The perfect, righteous sufferer who stood and suffered in our place for our sins. Lord, we pray this morning that You would strengthen our faith. Like Thomas, we believe. Help our unbelief. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.